It's going to be Joel chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 to 8. Joel 3, 1 to 8. For a sermon I've entitled, God's Vindication in Israel's Salvation. <coughs> Give me a minute to find that. Okay, your minute's up. There you go. Here's what it says. For behold, in those days... <coughs> And at that time I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. I will gather all the nations and bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. (coughs) Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they scattered among the nations and they divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head, since you have taken my silver and my gold and brought my precious treasures to your temples and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory. Behold, I'm going to arouse them from that place where you (coughs) have sold them and (coughs) return your recompense on your own head. Also, I will sell your sons and daughters into the uh, hands of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant land, for the Lord has spoken. You know, I'm not much of a fan of musicals, but one mo- uh, movie musical that I do like is Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, the name of the movie comes from the opening scene where the main character, Reb Tevia, says, a fiddler on a roof? Sounds crazy. No. But here in our little village of Anatevka, You might say that every one of us is a fiddler on the roof, trying to scratch out a pleasant and simple tune without breaking his neck. It isn't easy. You may ask, why do you stay up there then, if it's so dangerous? We stay up here because Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can answer with one word. Tradition. Without our traditions, our lives would be as shaky as a fiddler on a roof. Now, Reb Tevye is a poor Jewish milkman who along with his wife Golda is trying to raise five daughters. And according to the traditions of the time, the papas were the ones who were supposed to decide who their daughters marry. And being a poor man, he hopes that he can arrange marriages for each of his daughters with well-to-do men who can provide for them. Well, the problem is that uh, when it comes to the marriage, each of his daughters has a mind of her own. He arranges for the oldest daughter, Zaitzel, to be uh, married to Lazar Wolf, the butcher. Now, Lazar is a, a wealthy widower, but he's about the same age as Reb Tevia, and he's also fat and homely. And so Seidel doesn't want to marry the butcher. She wants to marry her childhood friend, the poor tailor, Matel Kamsoil. Uh, so she begs her father to let her marry Matel. Tevia's thinking it over. He says, on the one hand, he's a poor tailor. He has absolutely nothing to offer. On the other hand, things couldn't get any worse. It could only get better. Look at my daughter's eyes. She loves him. Well, breaking off the marriage plan with a butcher causes a scandal, but sometimes traditions have to be set aside. Well, the second daughter, Hoddle, falls for a communist revolutionary named Perchek. They get engaged without first asking the papa for permission. Scandalous. A short time later, Perchik is arrested and exiled out into Siberia, and Hoddle decides to go after him. The third daughter, Hava, falls for a boy named Fetka. And he isn't poor, he isn't a revolutionary, but worse yet, he isn't even Jewish. Matter of fact, he's a Russian Orthodox Christian. Now, Hava asks Tevya for permission to marry him, and he refuses, and so she elopes. 
Later, she meets her father on the road and begs him to accept their marriage. How can I accept it? Can I deny everything I believe in? On the other hand, can I deny my own daughter? On the other hand, can I turn my back on my faith and my people? If I try to bend that far, I'll break. On the other hand, no. There is no other hand. No hava. No. Later, as a result of persecution, all the people of Anatevka are forced to leave their homes behind and move elsewhere. As the people assemble to leave, Model says this, Rabbi, we've been waiting for the Messiah to come for all of our lives. Wouldn't this be a good time for him to come? The old rabbi says, we'll have to wait somewhere else. Meanwhile, let's start packing. Well, one of the books I have in my library is called The History of the Jews by British historian Paul Johnson. When you read through the pages and see all the discrimination, the harassment, the persecution of the Jews, their exile from Israel, their expulsion from one country after another, the pogroms in Russia and the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, it does indeed seem as if their continued existence is like that of a fiddler on a roof. But that same God who carried out those threats to bring covenant curses against Israel also promises that despite their sin, he will never ultimately and utterly forsake them. And in the end, he will save them and deal with Israel's enemies. As it says in Deuteronomy 32, 26, for the Lord will vindicate his people, he will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there's none remaining bond or free. Now this section of Job, or Joel's prophecy deals with just that time. So today, to give you a better understanding of these end time events and a better appreciation for God's faithfulness in keeping his commandment, or his promises, we want to zero in on the first eight verses of chapter 3. So why don't we pray, and I'll ask God to help me, and we'll get through the text. Our Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Help me with my voice <coughs> and my cough, and I pray that you would help us to listen as your word is preached. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> well, three things I say in the text this morning. The first thing is the restoration of Israel, and that's found in verse 1. The restoration of Israel. Second, we have the judgment of the nations, and that's in 2 to 3. The judgment of the nations, 2 to 3. And finally, the retribution for their crimes. And that's four to eight. Now, you may have heard that saying that prostitution is the oldest of professions. Well, anti-Semitism is the oldest of the world's hatreds. The term anti-Semitism was actually coined by a Jewish scholar, Moritz Steinschneider, in the 1870s. But hatred for the Jewish people goes back thousands of years before that. But why? Why have Jews been looked on with suspicion and contempt over the centuries? Well, many Jewish historians trace the problem back to the New Testament Christianity. And certainly it's the case that Jews have suffered in so-called Christian lands. The term Christ killer has been one that many Jews have had thrown against them over the centuries. But Jews are despised long before the church ever came along. Some argue that it's just a matter of jealousy. The economic success of Jews makes them a constant target. But many Jews have been poor, very poor, And there's other ethnic groups that are merchant classes as well. The Greeks, the Armenians, Lebanese, they are all throughout the Middle East. And yet they don't arouse the same resentment that the Jews do. Is it because they're clannish? Balaam prophesied of the Jews from the rocky peaks, I see them. From the heights, I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves to be one of the nations. Numbers 23, 9. That argument has been that if the Jews would just assimilate into the culture around them, the persecution would end. 
But no place did the Jews try to assimilate more than in Germany. And how did that turn out? Did that save them from Jew hatred? Look, the bottom line reason that Jews are hated is because they're the chosen people. And the persecution the Jews have experienced has been spurred on by the devil because he knows that when Israel finally converts, his kingdom will end. Well, according to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, the greatest persecution that the Jews will ever experience is yet future at the hands of one that the Bible calls the Antichrist. And according to Daniel 9.27, Israel will enter into a seven-year covenant agreement with him, but halfway through, the Antichrist will break that agreement and begin to kill the Jews. Now, after the Antichrist's forces are defeated, or defeats the Israeli army, many of the Jews living in Israel will be sold off as slaves and exiled into foreign countries, Arab nations. Our passage here speaks of the time after Jesus' rescue of Israel when he settles his score with the enemies of that country. So the first thing we find is the restoration of Israel. Let's go on to verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Well, in what days and at what time? Well, according to what we read in chapter 2, it'll occur during the day of the Lord, after the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the nation of Israel. When God promises that he will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, he's speaking here both of their wealth, their physical and material wealth, but also of their spiritual well-being. You know, in wars, when armies invade and occupy lands, it's very common for them to plunder the wealth of the country. The Nazis systematically looted art collections of wealthy Jews along with silver and gold and priceless vases. And even today, it's estimated that 20% of all the looted artwork has never been returned to the true owners of these pieces. In Zechariah 14.1, speaking of that same future reversal, God says this, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoils taken from you will be restored to you and divided among you. Often, you read in the prophets, though, that when the fortunes of Israel are restored, it also includes the people who are exiled being returned to the land. Isaiah 60, 1 to 5 says this, calls on the people in that day to rise and shine, for your light has come. It's talking to the nation of Israel. And the glory of the Lord has risen on you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear to you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar, and your daughters will be carried in their arms. They will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice. And because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you, the wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, uh, along with Sheba, and will come, and they will bring gold and uh, frankincense, and they will bear good news of praise to our Lord. Now, speaking of this future time with this Assyrian king and his armies, after they're cut down, the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 11 of Isaiah, then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch will will arise from the roots and bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. This is talking about the Messiah, Jesus, when he returns. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then later on in that chapter, it says this, Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will recover a second time with his hand the remnant of his people who remain from Assyria and Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, from the islands of the sea, and he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel, and he will gather in all the dispersed from the four corners of the earth. Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart, and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, 
and Judah will not harass Ephraim. Isaiah 11, 11 to 13. Now, it's not just the descendants of the southern tribes of Judah, the ones we know as the Jews today, but also the descendants of the northern tribes who've been lost to history who will be regathered into Israel. And then you'll find all kinds of prophecies about the rebuilding of the ruined places of the country and the land becoming like the Garden of Eden. And best of all, the Messiah will dwell within their midst, ruling as their king. And as all this, God says, will happen when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. At that time, he's going to restore Judah, but he's also going to bring judgment on the nations. And that's our second point. Look what it says in verses 2 to 3. I will gather the nations. I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people, my inheritance Israel, whom they scattered among the nations, whom they've divided up at my land. Now the Bible makes it clear that because Israel rejects the good shepherd, selling him for 30 pieces of silver, as was fulfilled by one of his disciples, God is going to, according to Zechariah 9, 12 to 14, raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing. Seek the scattered, heal the brokenhearted, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hoofs. The Bible calls this person the Antichrist, and we've learned and elsewhere in the Old Testament that he's going to be a future Assyrian king. In chapter 10 of Isaiah, it speaks of this king who will be used by God to chastise the nation of Israel. It says, starting in verse 5 of that chapter, Woe to Israel, the rod of my anger. And the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send it against the godless nation, meaning Israel, and commission it against my people for fury, to capture booty and to seize plunder, to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor is it part of his plan so to do so, but rather it's the purpose, its purpose is to destroy and to cut off many nations. But when God is done using the Antichrist for his purposes, it says in verse 12, so it'll be on that day when the Lord has completed his work on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. Do you remember what God promised Abraham? I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. You know, there's never been a nation that has been a better friend to Israel than the United States. And the reason is because there's strong support for Israel in the United States is because of the evangelical Christians. Avi Lipkin is a politician in Israel. He's written a book entitled Christian Revival for Jewish Survival. Lipkin's not a Jew, or not a Christian, but a Jew. But he understands that if Christianity does not revive in America, if instead it wanes, the support for Israel is going to dry up and evaporate. Israel surrounded by Muslim nations. <coughs> Islam teaches that Jesus will return and uh, rule. As one of their hadiths said, listen to what it says in their writings. It says, the day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight the Jews. When the Jews will hide behind stones and trees, the stones and trees will say, O Muslim, O Abdullah, there is a Jew behind me. Come and kill him. So Muslims believe and pray for the coming destruction of the Jews. Christians pray for the coming salvation of the Jews. Well, notice the two things in particular that are mentioned at this point for which God will bring judgment upon the nations. Look what it says. Then I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people, Israel, my inheritance, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up their land. Now, because this is a prophecy of end-time events, 
It's speaking of future exile of the Jews among the nations. That passage that I read earlier about God said this, he will again recover for a second time with his hand the remnant of his people who remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. The first time was when he gathered them back from Babylon. The second time is in the end days. Well, you know, we tend to think that slavery is a thing of the past. Well, according to the Bible, it's going to be a thing of the future as well. Indeed, even now, there's a lot of people who are trafficked as sex slaves. Now, notice the other sin that they're guilty of is that they've divided up my land. Now, I want you to take your Bible and turn to Ezekiel chapter 35. Ezekiel chapter 35. This is a prophecy against Edom, the nation of Edom. Look what it says down at verse 3. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am going, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay waste to your cities and you will become a desolation. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now look at the reason that God's going to bring judgment against this nation of Edom. He says in verse 5, Because you have an everlasting enmity and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, listen to this, at the time of the punishment at the end. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord, I will give you bloodshed, give you over to bloodshed, and bloodshed will pursue you since you have not hated bloodshed, therefore bloodshed will pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it the one who passes through and returns. I will fill its mountains with slain on your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines. Those slain by the sword will fall. I will make an everlasting desolation of your cities. They will not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you have said these two nations and these two lands will be mine, and we will possess them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, declares the Lord, as I live, declares the Lord, I will deal with you according to your anger and according to your envy, which you showed because of your hatred against them. So I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and heard, or have heard all your revilings, which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying they have laid waste, uh, laid desolate. They've given us, uh, been given uh, to us for food. And you have spoken arrogantly against me and have multiplied your words against me. I have heard it. Thus saith the Lord God, as all the earth rejoices, I will make you a desolation. As you rejoice over the inheritance of the house of Israel, because it was desolate, so I will do to you. You will be a desolation, O Mount Seir, and all of Edom, all of it. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now, seven things, several things I want you to notice here. First of all, the Edomites, these are the people who are the, um, the relatives of the Jews. Because Esau... The Edomites descended from him, and that was Jacob's brother. Now, the Edomites, according to this text, have an intense hatred for Israel. You see that? Secondly, we're told that they're a violent people. They love bloodshed. Third, they believe that the land should belong to them, and ultimately they'll take it. And it says that over in chapter 36, verses 2 to 5. Fourth, he says that their judgment will come at the end time, the time of the punishment in the end. And fifth, after this judgment, no one will ever live in this land again. Okay, let's do some thinking here. This is speaking about a future judgment on the land of Eden, which is southeast of modern-day Israel. 
These are the people who hate the Jews bitterly. They're very violent. And they believe the land of Israel rightly belongs to them. Is there any modern group you can think of who fits that description? The modern country of Jordan contains the land that made up ancient Edom in the southern part of Jordan. As a result of the 1948 war, when Israel declared independence, the Arabs who lived in Palestine at that time fled to Jordan. Today, there's over 2 million Palestinians who live in Jordan alone, many of them in the area of what is ancient Edom. Is it possible that the Palestinians, Palestinian Arabs, are actually the descendants of Esau and the Edomites that the prophet is speaking about here? The book of Obadiah is a prophecy specifically targeted against this nation. Scholars have a hard time placing in Obadiah, you know, when this happened. And the reason, I think, is because it didn't happen in the past. It's something yet to happen in the future. Listen to what it says in verses 10 to 14 of that book. It says, Because of the violence to your brother Jacob, you will cover, be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. On that day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lot for Jerusalem, you too are one of them. In other words, they're attacked, and people are being exiled, people are taken away, and they were cheering them on when they were doing it. It says, do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of disaster. Do not stand in the fork of the road to cut down the fugitives. That means the people escaping. And do not imprison the survivors in the day of their distress. By the way, if you look at uh, verses three to ni- uh, 319 of Joel, it specifically marks out the nation of Edom for destruction. Look at the other sin that they're indicted for, though. It says, they also cast lots for my people, Israel, or, uh, my people, this is back in Joel, and traded a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. Makes me think about ISIS in Assyria. Remember a few years back? They took captive many Yazidi women as war trophies. Most were raped, many were sold, some were forced to become wives of Muslim men. In Nigeria, the Muslim terrorist group Boko Haram, I read this about him, it says, on the night of the 14th and 15th of April 2014, 276 mostly Christian female students ages 16 to 18 were kidnapped by the Islamic terrorist group Boko Haram from government girls' secondary school in the town of Chibok in the Borno state of Nigeria. 57 managed to escape by jumping out of the trucks as they were hauling them away. All the rest of them were sold into sex slavery. More than 200 Nigeria, or 2,000 Nigerian girls have been abducted in this way. There's a lot of places in the world where human life is cheap, and it looks like the criminals can get away with it, but not ultimately. And that brings us to our last point, the recompense for their crimes. This is found in verses 5 to 8. You know, in that same book of Obadiah, it says, the, Lord, the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you've done to others, it'll be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. There's something that's known in the Bible as lex talionis, which is the idea of just retribution. You hit me, I hit you. You take someone else's life, you have to forfeit your own life. To put it in a biblical language, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I'll give you an example of that found in the opening of the book of Judges. There was a local chieftain, his name was Adonai Bezek. And he tried to flee, but they caught up with him. And when they did, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. But Adonai Bezek said this after they did it. Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes used to uh, cut off, used to gather scraps from under my table. As I have done, 
so the Lord has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Now God has a poetic justice which causes him to bring judgment on individuals and nations in a way that's appropriate to the sins that provoke them. Mobsters get bumped off by other mobsters. Eventually someone puts a bullet in their head. Well, here we have an example of Lex Talionis as a just recompense on Israel's enemy for the crimes provoked by the judge, uh, for the, uh, as judgment. Look what it says starting in verse 4. It says, Moreover, you, uh, who are, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me recompense? But if you recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on you. Now, Tyre and Sidon are ancient cities that still exist in the modern country of Lebanon. Tyre's uh, Lebanon's fourth largest city, Sidon's its third largest city. Iran's leadership uh, is committed to the destruction of the nation of Israel, and as it's made clear many times, one of the groups that they support in Lebanon is a group called Hezbollah, which means party of God. From its inception in 1985, they've had as one of its main goals the destruction of the Jewish state of Israel. Now, Philistia was the land of the Philistines. That's where Goliath was from. It's in the coast southwest of the land of Israel. Today, the area is known as the Gaza Strip. The area is only 25 miles long and 7 miles wide, but over 2 million people live in that area. There's 13,000 people per square mile living in the Gaza Strip. It's one of the most densely populated places in the world. The Israelis used to control the Gaza Strip, but they pulled out in 2007, and that's when the terrorist group Hamas took over. According to their 1988 charter, Jewish people have quote, only negative traits and are presented as planning to take over the world. And the Jews deserve all his enmity and wrath because they received the scripture but violated sacred texts, disbelieved the signs of Allah, and slew their own uh, prophets. Now the claim, they claim that the Jews actually started World War I with the hope of defeating the Ottoman Empire so that they could abolish the Islamic Caliphate. Boy, you thought you lived with tough neighbors here, huh? Well, the members of both of these terrorist groups hate the Jews, and they want to get them back for all their perceived wrongs that they've committed against them. But God asks this, are you rendering me recompense? But if you do, I will swiftly and speedily return it on your own head. Now notice what he intends to do, starting at verse 5. He says, since you've taken my silver and my gold and brought my, uh, bought, brought my precious treasures to your temples and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from the territory, behold, I'm going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell off your sons and your daughters to the hands of Ju uh, the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans to a distant land, for the Lord has spoken. Now, Israel's enemies will sell the Jews to the Greeks. Greeks are a merchant people as well. But God is going to pay them back by taking their sons and daughters and having them sold off to Sabaeans who will ship them off to foreign lands. Now, Israel's enemies are going to be paid back for the sins that they commit. Well, there's a whole lot of prophetic information here, and boy, it maybe feels like a drink from a fire hydrant for you. But what I want you to understand, just to sum this up, and then I'll draw some lessons from it. What it's talking about is a future time of a persecution of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel by the Antichrist, who after he defeats them three and a half years in, breaks this covenant, and then sells them off as slaves, gives the land to the Arabs who believe they rightly have it. They're going to destroy the Jews or try to, and Jesus is going to return, rescue them, and then he's going to settle with their enemies. 
Now, what lessons could we draw from this? Well, here's the first thing. God is faithful. God is faithful. He promised thousands of years ago that ultimately he would save the nation of Israel. They're not saved now. They're enemies of the gospel. But Paul tells us they're still beloved for the sake of the fathers and the choice that God's made. God is faithful. He keeps all his promises. This is why you want to know the promises of God and hold on to them. We're going into some difficult times for this country and possibly for the world. These days may not be a long time away. They may be coming quickly. It's going to matter whether you know the promises of God and can cling on to them and hold on to them when these days arrive. Second thing, though, that we have to say is God is just. He's just. He's paying back what people deserve for their sins. God keeps a record. God knows what's being done in Washington, in Moscow, in our own homes. Here's the third thing. God brings about vindication. He brings about vindication. Now, if you were listening carefully, you might have caught the fact that the title didn't quite match up with the verses I cited. I quoted earlier from Deuteronomy 29 that says the Lord will vindicate his people, so that's true. But I titled my sermon, The Vindication of God through the salvation of his people. Why is that? Because in Ezekiel 26, 22 to 24, God makes it clear. He says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you've profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among their, you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from the lands and bring you into your own land. Do you understand what I'm saying? God is not doing this ultimately because Israel's good. He's doing this because God is good. And God keeps his promises. I can sum it up with one comic strip. You can go away with this. Dennis the Menace is coming, walking down the street. He's with his friend Joey. They've just come from Mrs. Wilson's house. They're eating a pile of cookies. And Joey says, we must have done something awful good to get all these cookies from Mrs. Wilson. And Dennis says, Joey, Mrs. Wilson doesn't give us cookies to show us how good we are. She gives us cookies to show us how good she is. Everything God does for his people is not because of our goodness, but because of his goodness and his grace. We need to bank on that grace. We need to call on God to show us that grace. And if you don't know him, you need to call on him to save you and to do so soon. May God give us the grace to do just that. Let's pray. Our Father and God, thank you for the grace and mercy that you do provide. Thank you for the fact that we can be forgiven of all our sins no matter what we've done, no matter how filthy we've been, if we would just trust in your Son, he will wash away all of our sins. Father, we know that these days uh, are out in the future, but we don't know how far in the future. It may be coming very quickly. But someday you are going to save the nation of Israel, and we pray weekly, even in our church, Lord, that you would continue to call Jewish people to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So bless us now and bless them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.